Damn it. Shit. Looking for me? Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Film 89 podcast. My name is Sky and I'm still the editor of Film89.co.uk and I think we'll start by way of something of an apology. It's been, well, by the time this airs, it'll be over four weeks now since episode 14. I really do apologise on behalf of myself and the rest of the guys. Unfortunately, we've been struck with the curse that is the British school summer holidays. Uh, We've all got full-time jobs and unfortunately, when the kids are off school, we've got another full-time job. So... Rest assured, it's going to be business as usual as of this episode. We've got some great episodes planned with some uh, fantastic guests upcoming. So we're going to be back to the regular sort of fortnightly or thereabout schedule. So tonight's episode, I'm going to be talking to someone um, who I'm, well, extremely excited to have on Film 89. He's the producer, writer and director and founder of Dead Mouse Productions and Cult Screenings UK Limited creators of genuinely some fantastic documentaries on the making of some of my favorite films. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Mr. Gary Smart. Gary, welcome to Film 89. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Obviously, you know, we're going to be going to talk about one project in particular that you guys have been working on for a long time now, which is which is RoboDoc, uh, yeah. the making of RoboCop. But just for anyone who doesn't know you, doesn't know uh, Dead Mouse Productions of what you do, just... Um, just tell us or take us through what they do, what they've made so far and what their plans are for the future. Okay, then. So where do we begin? So the first thing we did as kind of as a production company was uh, Leviathan, the story of Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Now, that was a really long documentary on the first two Hellraiser films. We did. We chose that because obviously it's a British film. You know, one and two are really are British horror films. So we chose that. After that, we did um, Fright Night with Tom Holland. And we also covered Fright Night Part 2. Uh, documentary on that and then after that we uh, went away and did RoboDoc uh, which is obviously in RoboCop 1, 2, 3 and the TV series and then after that we started working on Pennywise A Story of It on the original 1990 TV series with Tim Curry Uh, and then after that we uh, started production on Police Academy documentary and one on Night of the Demons, and we've been working on our own narrative episodes, you want to call them, called Dark Ditties. As well as that, we've done numerous books as well, Beware the Moon, Lost Boys, and so on, and so on, and so on. <laughs> so, the D- Dalmos Productions, and the obviously the, you know, the documentary, and, and uh, you, know, you also produce books as well, all of that material, is it right that it's all independently funded? Yes, yeah. So basically, uh, Leviathan was independently funded, the first part of Leviathan was, and it was pretty easy to a degree, because we knew most of Harry's cast, it was, most of them were based in the UK, cast and crew, so we basically just got a hotel room, we had a good crew, and we got people in, and obviously interviewed them in a hotel in Birmingham. Uh, obviously then when you start expanding, obviously, to the cast who were over in the States, 
people like Tony Randall, Peter Atkins, and people like that, the crew. You have to then go go over. So we did a Kickstarter for that, and then obviously that was successful. The documentary sold out, and then what happened then, we used part of the funds for the profits from Leviathan to fund Fright Night, but we also did Kickstarter as well. So our kind of, our kind of model is that we each project funds the next project, but we also obviously top it up as well with obviously additional funds through Kickstarter. Uh, so we kind of become, to a degree, you mentioned like full-time jobs yourself, same here, we kind of become a non-profit kind of company which makes these projects which roll over and roll over. The first time I became aware of your documentaries, it may have been, I think, back maybe mid-2016 when Arrow announced they were going to be releasing a Hellraiser box set. Yeah. And I think it was it 2015 that Leviathan came out on DVD. It was, yeah. And so, is it, I think yeah. it was a, is it, in total. I think it's a nine-hour documentary. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then I, I'd I'd heard vaguely about Leviathan. I was aware of it, and I'd seen some sort of promotional images on, on social media. But then it was when I picked up that Arrow video box set. There, there's a version of Leviathan on it, which I think is sort of like pared down from the nine hours and and yeah. spread across the first two films. And that's that's pretty much where I first became aware of it fantastic documentary i've not seen the full-length version but um yeah <laughs> I, I was actually watching it in, in preparation for an episode of wrong reel i did with um james hancock in the states uh, where we covered the, the first three hellraiser films okay and you know I, I gave the documentary a bit of a shout out on the episode because it was it was so in-depth you know you, you were interviewing people like peter atkins who were just so passionate and you know the, the guys who played the lead cenobites and there's, you know there's loads of um, you know, interview footage on on the Blu-rays from you know the likes of Doug Bradley, and it was just as deep and you know explicit a dive into a film as I'd seen in a long time, and, and that is the sort of the thing that put me onto the films. With regards to that sort of Arrow version of Leviathan, did you have to sort of go back and sort of re-edit it down yourselves, or did you just give Arrow the footage and they sort of made their own version? No, no, we did it ourselves. I mean, it's quite a long story. Leviathan is in how how it obviously came about and obviously what happened with it. Cut a long story short, that obviously we interviewed 45 people, had about 90 hours of footage. Uh, it was kind of rushed edit, really. We were we had an editing team who weren't really our own team. They were the director's team who we had hired. And it kind of was rushed to a degree based on a narrative I had done in regards to the transcribes. And what normally should happen is once you do a transcribe list of obviously all the bits of interviews put together in a narrative form, it should be kind of tinkered with a few you know five or six times after that our director didn't really do that so what ended up happening was we kind of ended up with a final cut of leviathan being nine hours which it's really in depth people do love it but you know for me personally i do think in, in retrospect in hindsight that it is too long some bits are quite repetitive on it so when arrow approached us wanting the full version of leviathan we were like no we don't want to do that we want them myself and chris Chris Griffiths, who's a partner in the company, we said, you know, we want to edit ourselves, me and Chris, and make it kind of our version. So it's called the producer's cut on some of the uh, releases. So it's been released in Japan, Italy, China, France, and Germany as well. And it's called the producer's cut on those, those versions. And it literally was us, you know, really tightening it up, taking all the repeating the repetitiveness out of it and making it a little bit more kind of, con- you know, concise. Yeah, you know, I, I found because I'm I'm a sucker for just sort of digesting uh, you know extra yeah. features on Blu-rays and DVDs. You know, I always have been since I first you know bought my first ever DVD player. You know, I, I I did find with Leviathan that even though it was such a comprehensive documentary, there was you know I didn't find that there was a lot of repetition like I do with a lot of special features. So is that yeah. you think like a result of paring it down to say you know I, I think was it 
you it, it was nine hours and then across the two uh, discs which um, Arrow produced was it about uh, three hours for the one two hours for the other I think it was uh, actually I think it was an hour and a half for one and, and two hours for the other yeah I mean if you watch Leviathan the extended version you, you know you, you you've got 20 people saying how much of a genius Clive Barker is in you know in, in order do you need to know 20 people saying it really not really you need one or two people saying it um, and what we kind of did with Leviathan was as well, when we did the interviews, we kind of did 20, 20 pages of questions per person. And you kind of realize when you start evolving as a company and as a production company, you can't really spend two or three hours with one person on interview because really their interview should be based on what they actually did and what they know, not what they've heard since. And you do find that on documentaries a little bit and you'll get cast members who go, oh, this amazing story happened. But, you know, they weren't there for that story. They've heard it themselves over the years and they're regurgitating it as it's, as it's, you know, it's their own story. And what happens then, you end up getting two hours, three hours of footage of somebody. So obviously as, the, as we've evolved, we've kind of narrowed interviews down really to the really kind of core information we need. And then obviously the last question we always ask is, are there any other stories that we haven't covered that you want to tell us? Uh, and obviously that's when you get some kind of, yeah, you get the gold enough people. So on Police Academy, we've just done, the average interview was 30 to 40 minutes on that. And the, you know, the last 10 minute question was, anything extra you want to tell us? So, you know, you mentioned obviously it's not repetitive, Leviathan, but when you watch the Senate version, it can be repetitive. And, you know, that's something we was really conscious about when we obviously move on to Fright Night. Yeah, you know, I think it's something that you know it, it's only fairly recently, you know, the last um, well, not even a year that we've we've started this podcast. I've actually got you know my teeth into editing, and, and the more you go on, I think the more sort of judicious you get with an edit, yeah. and the more you're sort of willing to excise material. The way it, it might actually be interesting, you know, to fans if it does border on repetition or, or maybe you know yeah. like an, an anecdote that you feel is sort of being embellished, then you know it. It's, I, I suppose, ultimately, it's for the betterment of the final project, just to ditch it and get rid of it. And ultimately, whoever you know listens to or watches that final edit is not going to be aware of all you know the extraneous material anyway. No, I mean it's, it's a shame when you do it because obviously you've got somebody sitting there for two hours talking to you, and just you know these kind of you know you want it to the most in your, in your project, and it's a shame you have to cut stuff. But you're right; it's got to be what she's interested in, and it and it has has to have a pace. If it doesn't have a pace to it, it starts getting boring. And what happened with Leviathan is you've got nine hours of people talking, which, again, is really interesting. But what you've got to do in that nine hours is get as much footage and behind-the-scenes images as you possibly can to, to obscure the fact that it's just talking heads. Now, when you've got nine hours, it's hard to do that. And, you know, we had about five, 600 pictures of behind-the-scenes images for uh, Harry's 1, 2, and 3. That's a lot. Yeah. When it's nine hours, it's not a lot. You, you, you kind of lose them, really. But when you do it in a two-hour documentary... You've got lots of imagery coming up. It's really pacey. It's really eye-catching. And that's how you can obviously make sure you get the best out of what you've actually got regards to archive. I see what you mean there. And having not actually watched the nine-hour version, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, and, and from purely from a point of view of someone that was just watching it for you know their own enjoyment, I came away from you know the, the, the pared-down version. I just felt as if there was no stone was left unturned. Um, it, it was quite a frank and, and sort of candid documentary. And you know, it didn't you know skirt around certain issues like some of the failings with you know the writing on the latter half of the second film 
it's sort of the ideal thing you want when you're when you're watching a retrospective documentary you this you, you don't want a promotional puff piece you know that sort of any no, electronic no. press kit thing that just i got no time for you know I, I then subsequently went into the hellraiser episode that we recorded and it was as if i just had like sort of a mini phd on the hellraiser film sort of <laughs> just crammed into my brain so from that point of view it was just it was brilliantly effective and and when when you guys announced then that you, you know your next project was going to be robodoc is it 2016 that you started the Kickstarter fund for that? Well, I actually was just about to go and film Fright Night, and we did the Kickstarter for the following year. Yes, it was about 2016, yeah. Well, you know, before we move on to Robodoc, you then did um, Your So Cool Brewster, the story of Fright Night, which, yeah. um, you know, for people who are not aware or have not seen the actual standalone documentary, there's a version of it on the, is it the Eureka Entertainment Blu-ray? Yeah, and the same version is also on Shudder. Now, uh, Shudder licensed it, so if you've got Amazon Prime, you can watch it on there as well. You know, I, I've got the, the Fright Night Blu-ray, and, you know, if anything, it was it was the same thing again. It was just like, yeah. it was like a crash course in Fright Night. Now, Fright Night's not a film I know as explicitly as, you know, certainly Robocop and, and the Hellraiser films. And it was one that I was sort of returning to, having not seen for about 20 years. But again, it was, I think, a little bit more lighthearted in tone. Yeah, <laughs> just just did it. Just did the job, and you know, I came away from there thinking, yeah, if someone sat me down now and gave me a you know a, a pen and paper and a writing pad and just write down everything I, I I knew about that film, I felt that I could do like a, a sort of mini chronology of the film from start to finish. Yeah, see, it's really weird because you know on Leviathan you've got something which is about kind of these demons who are kind of torturers and you've got the you know snm kind of element to it so it's kind of really hard to be kind of light on yeah. a documentary like that when the subject matter is so dark and it is gory whereas fright night because it's a horror comedy and because it's kind of now kind of a family kind of film to a degree and you've got Roddy mcdowell it was easy to be light on that one and obviously you know it was a different kind of production you know you've got people like steve johnson involved tom holland's kooky as hell Roddy mcdowell obviously and stephen jeffries people like that so you've already got a different kind of feel to the project already. And I, we always said, you know, when we look back at Leviathan, that you can never do Leviathan like that because of the fact that the tone itself for the movie you're covering isn't lighthearted. So it, so it does really help when you have kind of a kind of, you know, the genre of the film itself does help obviously with the delivery of a documentary, really. Yeah. You did your so cool booster. Um, yeah. At what point then? Uh, did you get the idea to do a documentary on Robocop? And was there anyone in the team that was sort of more at the forefront of, of pushing ahead to do that? Yeah, so basically, I mean, I chose Levi- Leviathan Harry. It's my favorite, some of my favorite horror films. And obviously then I chose Friday Night. I, I just love that film as well. Chris Griffiths always wanted to do one on Robocop. And we were kind of, a, a book came out, and I, I won't name the author, but a book came out a couple of years, few years before about Robocop, the thing of history, and Chris contacted me saw and said, you know, big fan of Robocop, I'd love to do a documentary on it, and this guy basically responded and said, you don't do a documentary on that, I've already done the definitive book, and there's no way you'll ever be able to do it, the cast won't do it, and that, to a degree, kind of put a downer on it for Chris, and Chris came and spoke to me about it then, and then actually, in a conversation we had, it was like, well, well, why can't we do it? So when we were in LA filming Fright Night, I said to Chris, just, just, it, Chris had already been talking to Ed Newmire, the writer of Robocop, just on Facebook. And I said to Chris, just message him and ask him to go for a meal. You know, we'll go out, take him out for a meal, just as fans, you know, have a chat to him. And we did. And when we went for the meal with him, it was he who asked us, why don't you do a documentary on Robocop? Wow. I mean, we were there for that reason, but we didn't want to come out with it. But obviously it was kind of serendipity. He said it to us himself. And when, when we got back to the UK, you know, I went to Chris's, me and Adam did, and we literally did a narrative structure there and then, and we got 
Eastwood Allen involved, who the, the, who had edited Fright Night for us. And uh, Eastwood again, he's a massive Robo fan, just like Chris. And these people, these guys are huge Robocop fans, and he we got him on board straight away, and it, and it just basically you know, kind of snowballed. Once we got Ed involved, we had Michael Miner, then Paul Verhoeven got involved, and then we had Ronnie Cox, Kurtwood Smith, and he just went on and on. Nancy Allen. I mean, you know, literally, we ended up with, you know, as we'll talk about in a bit, over 100 people interviewed on that project. That's really timely and interesting because I'm not going to name the author, but I'm pretty sure we're referring to the same book. Is it right? They came out, I think, 2014 or thereabouts? Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I bought that book, you know, I had it pre-ordered and I read it, you know, over the course of a night or two. And being a lifelong fan of Robocop myself, I've absorbed every little bit of information I can about the film. I've got to say, I came away from that book feeling sort of undernourished. I think there was about 84 pages uh, just dedicated to the first film. I came away from it thinking, I haven't really learned anything new about the film that I didn't already know. I, I will say, yeah. I, did, I, I learned quite a bit about the production of the second and third films, which I've got much less of an interest in. Mm. Not, so, not so much of the second, because I've got this sort of sick sort of car crash fascination with it. You know, there's a part of me that really wishes that they they made a better film, but I fully understand the you know, the production issues, the things with the right to strike. But this was all things that I've only learned in the last couple of years because I did find for the longest time there was a, a lack of readily available information about the behind the scenes stuff on Robocop Two. So from that point of view, I thought the book was a bit of a, you know, it, it did its job there. But certainly with yeah. its, co its coverage of the first film, I just thought it was very much lacking. And when you know. The initial Kickstarter then um, came to my attention, and I thought, well, if you know they're going to do for Robocop what they've done for the Hellraiser films and Fright Night, then holy cow, this is going to be something I've waited for 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 years. I mean, I, I mean, well, we're going to detail about it later on, but let's just say the current edit on Robocop One for the first film is over five hours currently, and obviously, and I'll tell you how Chris is doing that in a second later on about how he's editing it, and why it's different, and why it's taking a little bit longer than. We expected, but I mean, yeah, I mean, the book isn't bad. It's visually nice. What came out, but I mean, Chris himself said, you know, a lot of interviews in there were from old magazines. You know, were archival interviews, and you know, and nothing against the author, but you know, when someone tells you don't do something, it kind of makes you want to do it then even more. So you know, and there's kind of as fans as well, and Chris being a fan, Chris knew there was more out there. Chris knew there was more stories, and you know, getting getting people like you know Bixby Snyder, you know. I buy that for a dollar, guy. You want him involved? They've never been interviewed before ever. Getting Hob from number two, the kid. It's people who never interviewed ever on those films we got, and it's kind of they had more stories than was in the book, or also on the DVD and the Blu-ray releases. There's, there's always stories out there. There's always something else you can get if you look in the right place. Yeah, so obviously Ed Newmeyer then is you know he's propositioned you guys to to, to make this extensive documentary, and you know how did it help having him on board as a as a creative consultant? It, it, it massively, I mean, as soon as you mention Ed's name to anybody, you obviously get people interested in being on board then. You know, the same thing happened with Fright Night. You know, once Tom was fully on board, it was a doddle then because obviously people respected Tom as a director and the writer. They came on board because of Tom. And it was kind of the same with Ed, really. I mean, we deliberately had him take a back seat. I mean, he was creative consulting in the sense that we went to him, obviously, for advice really on certain things, and obviously where we had some issues with certain people and whatnot. Uh, and he, obviously, when we interviewed him in L.A., he came back for a couple of interviews, and since then we've become very good friends with him. We were with him last in, in August. We had, went for a meal with him. So we are quite friendly with Ed now. So having him on board was just amazing, just for the support, really, and having that kind of stamp of approval, really, with the original writer. 
as I said, he's a genuinely nice guy who's very interested in documentaries and interested in us as well. You know, he had watched Leviathan, enjoyed it, and he'd watched uh, Fright Night and really enjoyed it as well. Being kind of, we've been very lucky in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can, can you tell us about you know the just the the general from start to finish? Well, I, I know obviously you're not at the finish yet, but the production no. process on a project like RoboDoc, you know, with it being a crowdfunded fund adventure, you know, how does that affect you know the initial planning process? Given that initially you don't know how much the eventual you know eventual budget you will have to spend on the project is. So, you know, do you have a basic plan based on just sort of hitting that, that initial Kickstarter goal? I think you really, it's fingers crossed, that's what you do most of the time with these projects. You have your minimum kind of, when we say we need 20 grand, that's the minimum that we need. You know, we can't do it without that. We're not greedy in that sense. You know, we raise £30,000 for Evercop, but it's cost over £60,000 to make. Wow. So when people moan about it's not being out, there's £30,000 of our own money invested in that project and still being paid for now. You know, it's not as though we took the money and obviously just, you know, spent it and then did a runner and I've been editing for two years. But what you do on these projects really is you, I said, you know, you, you get your cast involved first, you've got to, and you basically say to the cast and crew that, this is a kickstarted project and hopefully this will happen and these are the dates are going to happen and you keep your fingers crossed i mean something like robocop we you kind of know when you've got a good amount of cast and crew involved and you've got a good film you're going to get your funding hopefully but the problem with kickstarters now and indiegogos is that five years ago people were, were paying one hundred fifty thousand pounds for an omelet or, or you know contribute <laughs> to that weren't they yeah. What, what, you know, and people were supporting projects because they wanted the projects to happen. What happens now on projects is you won't get someone giving you a few quid because they love Robocop. They want the Blu-ray. They want the poster. They want the T-shirt. They want something out of it now as opposed to wanting to see it happen. And that kind of culture has changed a little bit on, on uh, crowdfunding. I, I think people are inherently greedy and the perk system you know, for, for all it is yes you know you, you'll get these additional benefits the more money you contribute but ultimately you know if you if, if you're like a you know a hardcore fan of that thing then surely you know your, the ultimate satisfaction is going to be having a product like RoboDoc that's completely you know which you make I, happen yeah yeah you know a, a studio is never going to sort of they're know, not going to invest the money yeah they're, they're not, not going to no certainly not, not. They, they can afford to do it as well, you know. When you're talking about a project costing 60 grand, that is peanuts yeah. to a studio. It isn't to us, and it isn't to us personally as well. But they would never invest that much money. And also, I guarantee you now that if they did a project like Robocop, it wouldn't cost, Robodoc, sorry, it wouldn't cost 60 grand. It would probably cost 300 grand, yeah. 400 grand, because Chris, myself, Eastwood, Adam, Mikey, who's our production coordinator, we aren't getting paid. We don't take a salary out of this at all. So if you add up what we should be being paid, yeah. that's when it skyrockets then. So the fact we don't take money from anything means, obviously, we can get these projects made for the minimal cost guarantee. That's, where, that's when the aftermath of these projects gets frustrating for us and upsetting, is that literally these are labours of love. These are projects which we want to do because we love the project, the, the, the movies. And it's not just because we're making money. We don't make money on these projects. No. Yeah, you have more whole credit here, really, because you know, even when I think back in 2014, um, when there was a sort of a bit of a resurgence in all interest to do with things Robocop related, when yeah, you know, the I won't say too much about the remake, but you know, uh, when, when that came out, and you know, I, I was 
for years just sort of keep my fingers crossed that MGM Sony would put their hands in their pockets and and do a really good remaster of the film which that year they did and you know the remasters that were done of a few films around about that time the Terminator and Robocop were fantastic now they they were always notoriously very sort of grainy looking films didn't look the you know the crispest but you know that blu-ray remaster is incredible but then on, on the same blu-ray all you've got is is sort of maybe about 45 minutes of, of interview material there's there's, yeah. there's, there's a, i think a, a half hour standalone documentary which i think you can get on youtube and then a few um pieces that were made you know just before that blu-ray was put together but you know again it, it was great to see a lot of the cast and crew talking but it, it did kind of leave me wanting a lot more to be honest you you know we've we talked obviously with other people about documentaries if you're a, a film aficionado you want to know what happened you want information you want to see the cast and crew as we are now talking about their film you know and you, you get that for about 11 minute preview i mean i've just we we discussed last year about doing a master universe doc and i love master universe i know it's the kind of campy film from the 80s but I, I love it that film i think it's got some great stories behind it about what went wrong really with the film and that you know and we we were told oh no this new there's no point doing it because it's they're doing the one about the, the action figure line which covers the film you know and there's no point in doing it. and i watched the documentary today the masters of gray school whatever it's called on netflix great doc the film is covered for 11 minutes yeah you know and you know, they got frank langella which is amazing getting him involved but You've got 11 to 15 minutes, whatever. Well, actually, there's more to that film than 11 to 15 minutes. So actually, there is a doc out there which could be made on Mass Universe because there's still information that people want. And like you just said, Ben, you buy the Blu-rays of your favourite films and you get a 15-minute featurette. New one, recently been made, but with two or three people who maybe aren't the main stars of the film or maybe you know, you've heard the same stories over and over again. And that's what the problem you get in some projects is that you hear the same stories on YouTube, on Q&As, over and over again. And sometimes, you know, when we're doing these kind of mini features, you haven't got a fan making it. You've got somebody who's been hired by the studio to go and get Nancy Allen sitting in a chair with a list of questions. When you've got fans making these projects, you're really getting the gold, really, because you're getting really inside the characters, the motivations, you know, what, what was cut what kind of how do you develop your character that kind of stuff you get when a fan's doing it yeah now i'm not going to say i'm as big a fan of of, of masters of the universe as you are but yeah. I, I do appreciate it from a, a nostalgic point of view yeah. it, it, it is a film that if it's on tv i will maybe you know yeah. just sit down and watch it for a half hour um I, I was watching i think back the tail end of last year um electric boogaloo the the untold story of yeah. canon films and that's a great documentary is, yeah, yeah. and and obviously masters of the universe being a, you know, a golden globus canon uh, production you know, there is about, I think, about three to five minutes dedicated to the film in that. But again, I was just left wanting more because yeah. it, it, it's such a... And I was a huge fan of the toys when I was a kid. And, oh, me too, and, yeah. You know, when that film came out, it was just like, you know, it, I was like a kid in a sweet shop. I still remember going to see it at the cinema. I remember exactly what, you know, where I was, when I went. That's why, for me, it's, nost it's for nostalgia. I think, like most of these projects, that the reason why people want to invest in support on pledges and whatnot is that nostalgia element. I mean, look at Stephen King's It, the original 1990s. That film, TV series, has flaws, but yet people ignore the flaws because of the nostalgia of remembering Tim Curry as Pennywise and that iconic figure. And you get that in these other films as well, you know, the nostalgia element of these films. 
Yeah, I I agree, and it I do try and divorce myself from nostalgia. Is it you know the, the first ever piece on film I wrote as sort of like a test for myself um, years ago was um, a piece on RoboCop. That was the very first sort of article I, I put together, and I thought I'm going to pick that because it's going to be such a hurdle to get over the nostalgia for me, yeah. and then be able to read back and think, yeah, you know, I've I've sort of pulled that film apart in a sort of semi-objective way. I have put a personal slant on it because it is my favourite film after all. Was it, yeah, last year for the 30th anniversary, I went back, I completely redid that piece and I'm I'm able to look at it objectively and say, yeah, you know, I can justify every sort of bit of praise I've given to that film and I can also justify the fact that there's very little in the way of criticism of the film but you know i get involved in a lot of conversations on twitter all the time about you know with people who are throwing praise at films from their childhood films which you know i've gone back and watched and and they've just not held up well and a lot of them are not going to be popular choices a lot of the time i've got to you know sort of bite my lip so yeah but you know that nostalgia factor is massive we've had you know we've had stranger things which plays on the 80s nostalgia yeah it's just it's almost coming to a point now where i think the 80s nostalgia bubble is going to burst, and they're going to probably move on to 90s stuff. It, you know, yeah, so- I'm, I'm not a fan of, of uh, Stranger Things, and only because the nostalgia element is too much for me. I think it's just when you know season two slash with Ghostbusters, you know, costumes. It's it's way too much nostalgia. I mean, I like when you get little bits of Easter eggs put like, you know plotted through. When it's throwing, you know, pushing your face a little bit, it kind of, it's, you know, it's too much. Yeah, and it, yeah. As well, I- that, in a couple of those time, that series will age really bad. Because you said the next nostalgia will be the nineties, uh, you know, it will be the you know the noughties. It will be, and you know, people will go, what you know, why so people interested in the eighties? Because a next generation of people start watching Stranger Things who aren't from the eighties. Yeah, and you know, I've, I've thought like, how will that that show play out to someone who's from you know the the, yeah, the millennial yeah. generation who are not part of Generation X, who didn't grow up with the likes of Ghostbusters, Gremlins, ET? You know, how is that show going to play to them? And you know, I, I agree with you. I towards the tail end of season two I was losing interest and thinking they should wrap it up here now where are they going to go with season three yeah you know unless yeah. they take it down the route of yeah. with, with the character of Eleven go down the route of turning it into sort of a spin on the superhero genre I think you know I think they should sort of it's making money it, it's extremely popular they're going to carry on doing it whether or not I'm there for seasons three and four you know we, we've yet to see but but going back to RoboDoc Gary yeah I think initially was it you were going to interview twenty five to thirty people based on the initial twenty thousand pound Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so they, when that, when that yeah. ballooned, you know, thankfully, at what point did you realise that things were maybe getting a little bit, you know, way beyond what your initial projections were? Uh, it's really weird on these projects. Is that you know we all say that once you get at least ten, if you get ten people, you've got a documentary. You know, ten core people, you've got a doc. No matter, even if you had the Short, you know, an hour and a half doc. You've got a documentary of ten people because you can you can pad it out. So we had we also we had twenty five to thirty people on, on Robocop. Now the problem with Robocop is when you're covering three films. So originally it was the first film only we were yeah. going to cover and and talk about two and three as a legacy section. Uh, but when you start suddenly getting stories about what went wrong on the second film, Tom Noonan pops up. You know, you've got to get him in it then, because obviously it's Kane. Yeah. Then obviously Hob pops up, the kid, and then Galen Gorge pops up. And then, you know, these people start coming out of the woodwork a little bit, and you're thinking, you know what, it's going to, this is getting bigger and bigger. And then obviously you think you can't do just one and two that doing three. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll talk about three in the sense that I think the documentary is very good on number three, what we've done, because even though the film isn't that great, 
when you watch what went wrong or what should have happened, the struggles and the trials that they went through to make that movie, you'll you'll appreciate it a lot more after. So, but when you start speaking to Robert Burke, who's this massive charismatic guy, you start thinking, sugar, we've got a bigger documentary here. I and mean, you start looking at your, your, your interview list and it goes from 25 to 30 and it goes from to 45, 50, 60, 70. And you start thinking, you know, what the hell am I doing? So we shot literally, I think it was 70 interviews in LA. And when we outsourced another 30, when we got back. So it just, as I said, you know, it was, it snowballed, but it didn't get out of control in the sense that every single person who were interviewed was needed and actually contributed and now what Chris has done with Eddie, it definitely needed these people are because of how he's edited it. To take me through you know, the, the logistics of, of getting hold of these people, you know, agreeing to interview them, and then physically, obviously, conducting the interviews, because I would imagine you know, they're, they're going to be done all over the place. See, Leviathan was. Leviathan was literally done in the UK and then in Birmingham and then spread across the States, LA, basically. Fright Night was a bit of a... A chore because even though it was an easy project to do because of Tom being involved, we went to people's houses. So we went over to, to the States, to LA, and for two weeks we were going to 30 odd people's houses around LA. We had to go to New York as well and do an interview and come back for you know all that done in one day. Then when we did Robocop, we said, No, we're not going to do that. What you want to do, green screen, you want obviously it to be futuristic, kind of like in a sense how it looked. The aesthetic of the documentary needs to be the aesthetic of obviously Robocop, you know, industrial kind of futuristic yeah. kind of. Green screen's gonna be good for that. So we hired a studio, and obviously that then make, increases your costs then massively when you have a studio. And green screen does as well, because the light on the green screen's a nightmare. So what happened then was we did the core interviews in LA in a studio over two weeks. Then we went to Texas, and we shot in a hotel room with green screen. We shot about eight, nine interviews in Texas. And then we went to New York, again, in a hotel room, green screened it up and shot about eight interviews in New York. And then obviously last year when we did Pennywise, we shot another three interviews in Vancouver for the TV series of Robocop on green screen. So it's kind of, you know, you get your cast involved and then obviously we get a great person, a great guy called Mikey Perez, who's known for documentaries such as Never Sleep Again, Chris Lake Memories, Scream, A True Hollywood Story, More Brains. Lots of documentaries Mikey's worked on. He then, I give him a list of who we want, who I've spoken to, who I want to speak to. His job is to find those people, the ones who aren't readily be available on Facebook and things like that. He then finds them, makes contact with them, books them in, provisional dates, and then he then gives me and Chris and Adam a list of days. And on day one, you know, Monday, July 23rd, whatever, we're going to be in LA and in our studio and we've got nine interviews that day each one lasting an hour wow. and we're and we're in the interview room we get there at half six in the morning seven o'clock we don't leave the studio until about seven o'clock at night eight o'clock so when people go people think we're on a jolly when we're over there we, you think of it we shot 70 interviews in three weeks work you know you do the math on that when you've got an hour interview each 45 minute interview each you don't have much time for social time really you don't wow. you're literally in a studio all day so this is well completely taken over your lives, I'd imagine. Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, about yourself, obviously, you know, you haven't done your podcast because you've got a full time job. We we've got full time jobs. We our company is uh, is one thing. You know, we we make these documentaries and books, and we make obviously our documentary series. But also, we've got full time jobs. Chris uh, is a videographer for uh, a big company, makes all their corporate videos for them. I work in education, so does Adam. 
So we have to do all these projects, weekends, evenings and holidays, really. When people again kind of go, it isn't out yet. Well, it's difficult when you're editing 100 people and you've got to go to work from nine in the morning until five in the evening. But it, it takes over your life, really. Robocop takes over your life. Hellraiser took over my life for a long time. So did Friday night. The moment I'm kind of involved in Pennywise and I'm involved directly in obviously Police Academy at the moment, Robocop has completely taken over Chris's life. I know he's doing stuff today. I'm speaking to him. So, yeah, it kind of becomes a you kind of get kind of robocoped out a little bit sometimes or please carry it out. Take it from someone who's a lifelong fan. And yeah. as much as I've not seen the final product yet, I have no doubt given the, you know, your previous work that I've seen, it's, it's going to be worth it. And yeah. no one else has, has, has created such a, you know, an extensive look at, at certainly the first film and, you know, beyond that. So, you know, I think you're doing something like going back to that book that we mentioned, I'm not going to you know mention the name yeah. of the book or the author. I didn't find that that was definitive. And yeah. obviously, you know, you, you're aware of the fact that, you know, a lot of those interviews were culled from existing material, whereas you guys have gone out there and you've gone in, you know, hands-on, gone directly to the people to get the original sort of, you know, warts and all story about the making of these films. Yeah. So, you know, and, and who else is going to go to all that trouble to do that now that you guys have done it? Because, like I said, oh, they're, they're going to be just basically doing what you've already done. I mean, yeah, it shouldn't be, shouldn't be done again. We always say that we, we, we intend to make a project where you don't have to do it again. There's no reason yeah. to do it again. I mean, if you made documentary on Hellraiser again now, I don't know what, what you get more out of it than us. You might you might look might make it look better. You might make it aesthetically look more pleasing, aesthetically sorry, but you're not going to get any more out of it. You might get Clive Barker sitting in the chair. I doubt that's very much going to happen, but you're not going to get everybody else to say something different. So you know, we all say to people on the interview as well. You know, I know it does affect them in regards to Q and A's and do the shows. We all say, imagine this is the last time you're ever going to be interviewed about this project. What do you want to say? And people give us some good stories then. And yeah, people do end up going to Q&As for a lot, doing the same stories over and over again. And you'll find when you watch some Q&As on Friday night, same stories, obviously, which in the doc. But the difference is, in a documentary, you've got other people backing those stories up. You've got images, you've got archive footage, you've got some animation and some art. So those stories come a little bit more kind of flavour than they were sitting on the stage, somebody talking which is obviously a different experience completely when you, you know, it's, it's, it is a great experience watching someone doing a and a but when you watch somebody doing, answering the same question, but in a narrative format with a lot of other people, it's, you know, it becomes a kind of something very unique, really. Yeah. If, right. If we can take, in relation to my next question now, we'll take Peter Weller, we'll put him in a little capsule, put him aside. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that later. I don't mind talking about Weller. Well, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come to that in a bit. But, <laughs> so aside from Peter Weller, were there any people that were particularly hard to trace for the documentary? Bixby Snyder, the chap who played him, S.D. Yeah. Nemeth, um, I buy that for a dollar. He was very hard. Uh, I got kind of did some investigation work on him. Hobb was quite hard to get hold of, and we managed to convince him. Nobody else really was on Robocop. It kind of, you kind of find a place really Robocop did. You do find sometimes you, people who've never interviewed before, and they, they kind of obscure. We had it on Hellraiser with Imogen Borman, who played Tiffany in Hellraiser 2. She'd never been interviewed ever about that film, and we found her living in the highlands of Scotland, you have to become a, 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 a private detective where you find some people sometimes. And obviously just recently on Police Academy, we were told you were never, ever going to get Bobcat Goldthwait. Yeah. And we did. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, we got him, and that was thanks to Tim Kasarinski, who played Sweet Chuck. But still, we got him in front of us and interviewed him, and it gave a great interview. So you get some difficulties, but you try and get your kind of hard hitters first, 
and then work backwards really on some of the kind of people you know are going to be involved. So what was uh, Paul Verhoeven's involvement? Is it just from purely an interview capacity or did yeah, he... Yeah, no. yeah Paul, I mean, he, Paul was very good. I mean, when we got to his house, I mean, it was, again, it's one of his interviews. It's kind of hard to kind of orchestrate into like Paul because you have to go through his, his management team. Yeah. And you don't speak to him directly at first. And we got to his house in Malibu and we walked in and we were taken into the back room and we were told we only had an hour. Wow. And that, that included setup time as well. You're setting up green screen. It takes a lot. It takes 20, 20 minutes, thirty minutes. We were yeah. kind of really crapping ourselves. And as we walked in, his wife was really nice, and she took us through. And he was sitting to the left of us at a kind of breakfast bar, eating porridge or muesli of some sort. <laughs> looked at us and turned his head, and we thought, "Oh God, he's he's not nice. He's not nice." Wow. So Chris was absolutely like wetting himself. Chris was. We set up, and he walked in then to the room and he started he was interested he was looking at the equipment and he started asking questions and then in five minutes he was like all over us like a rash he was really nice really interested laughing joking got on his hands and knees signed loads of posters for us we ended up spending two hours even then the only reason why we, we the only reason why we, we were stopped because he had a meeting with somebody else he was going for a meal oh. he would have stayed he would have stayed longer but you know, we was in his house, and you kind of he we had ice lolls off him, which was nice. So you you, you, you went to Paul Verhoeven's house, yeah, and you had ice lollies from him. Ice lollies, wow, oh, and, I see. But then he got us uh, Jost Valansko, uh, then who who was the cinematographer, who was quite hard to get hold of, to be honest. It was because of Paul actually went, give me a minute, went on his emails, emailed and went, yeah, I'll email him for you now. Watch it, yeah, did it, and did it, and that was it, and then. The, a day later, got an email off Yost. Yeah, isn't isn't Yost? He, I think isn't he a fellow Dutchman, and he worked on um, a lot of Paul Verhoeven's Dutch films before he moved to America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and uh, Yost still lives in uh, actually Yost lives in Germany. That's, we had to go to Germany to go and do him. But yeah, he's he, he yeah he's a nice guy as well. But again, he was difficult to get hold of. It was only because of people like Paul who got got us him. Is there you know? Obviously, you know, I've only seen from the trailer the people that are involved. Um, were you able to speak to like anyone from uh, Basil Polidurus's family? We were going to speak to his wife at one stage, and we kind of, in the end, decided not to, just because we had a lot of people talking about Basil mm-hmm. and about the music anyway. And I just think, you know, it, it was just, again, it's one of those things when you're already making a big documentary, what more could a spouse give? I know she does talk a lot about him, she does. But in a narrative context, when you've got people talking about the music, other than a personal side, what more could she give, really? Other than the personal side of it, really. So we kind of decide not to in the end, and that might not be that might be a good thing, might be a bad thing. But again, we've got a lot on obviously Basil anyway from other people. Yeah, I think I know what you're saying there because when you're talking about you know the music in a film, that you, like you say, what can you say about that? You know, there's, there's... It, yeah, it's always difficult the music parties. When you know, when you interviewed Brad Fidel, who did Fright Night. He sung on that, so you know, he added a little bit extra to it, and he actually did lyrics. We spoke to Christopher Young on on Hellraiser. It's a very small section of a documentary, right? and you're talking a very small section because people go, yeah, the music was great. Yeah, because, you know, unless there's going to be anecdotes like, you know, the the famous one with John Williams sitting down with Steven Spielberg when he knocked out the, um, you know, the, the, the few notes that made the Jaws theme. You know, what else can you say about the, you know, the score of the film, really? It, it's, it's very difficult, really. To, and then, we, you know, we just did it on Police Academy. We were interviewing Robert Foe, who did the, the famous now Police Academy theme. But in the documentary sense, it's going to be, what, a couple of minutes it's going to be covered for in a two-hour documentary. It's not going to be covered that long to a degree, unfortunately. Even though it's iconic, as you said, 
unless you go into real detail about how they actually orchestrated that and obviously how they came up with regards to note-wise, it becomes, in a way, kind of not pacey. Do you know what I mean? It's nice as a bonus feature, but not yeah. as the main doc. Yeah, I see what you mean. With regards to the interviews and the planning, did you sort of have like a, a wish list of the people that were at the top, the sort of top tier ones that you wanted more than anything to interview? And, and you know, how did you go about then uh, you know, approaching that? I mean, on any project, you always look at your, your kind of main cast and crew. Really. You want your director on board, you want your producers, your writers, and obviously you want your main cast then. Uh, and obviously when you're doing a, a special effect film, you want special effects guys in. So you have those core people who are recognisable faces. So on something like Robocop, you're going to have Paul Verhoeven, you're going to have Ed Newmeyer, Michael Miner, and then you're going to have the likes of obviously Weller, Nancy Allen, Kurtwood Smith, Ronnie Cox. And then you're going to go to the people like, obviously, respect the effects guys, Bart Mixon, Phil Tippett, you want Rob Bottin, but no one's ever going to get Rob Bottin, which no. we know. And then obviously you start working around those people then. But my philosophy has always been on documentaries is, is that just because you are the main star in that film does not mean you've got the best stories. Because you could have, you know, people need to understand as well, when you're, you look at someone like Pinhead, Doug Bradley, he's got loads of stories about obviously, you know, how he created Pinhead, obviously, you know, the look of him, how the legacy. But that guy was in the film 11 minutes and he'll be on the set say a 60-day shoot, probably on the set four days, but then you've got someone like Clive Mackey, who's the clapper loader, would have been on the set on, for 60 days. Yeah. So who's going to give you the best stories with regards to the production? Who's going to give you the best stories with regards to the character? So that you use people like your Dougs for, for the character and the makeup, and then you use people like Clive, who's a clapper loader for you, stuff on your director, the location, the production, any kind of interesting stories that went wrong. So that's when you start building the back end of it up, Ben. And the back end people, I think, are more important. Not more important, sorry. Back end people are as important as the main cast. That makes perfect sense. If you've got an actor that's going, you know, on set, they've got in their mind their script, they've got, you know, all the things of the makeup wardrobe to contend with. If you've got someone like, you know, a grip, like a, a clapper loader, they, yeah. they're, they're sort of like the eyes and ears of the production. And you're you're also going to have this as well. It's kind of you find when you start working on these projects, you kind of go into these projects all rose tinted, thinking, you know, they love them film as much as you do. You're an actor who's got a filmography of thirty, forty films. You get given Robocop, you turn up on set, do your script, you go home. You don't think about that film again. You know, you go into the next movie straight after because that you've done your bit. It becomes a cool classic. It becomes a legacy. Yeah, you go to conventions, you go to Q and As. It becomes great then. But what if you're the art director or the set designer or the makeup guy, you've spent months and months and months in pre-production, designing, changing, altering, working director, creating these kind of characters aesthetically. That's when you remember your stories and you look at your photographs and you've got your videos and behind the scenes stuff. And actors doesn't tend to have that because they go in, do a job and go home. Yeah. Don't remember some of the stories. You say to an actor... You know, on, on Police Academy, you go, remember the scene, obviously, on the ski ski jets in the end of number three? You know, what was it like filming that? I can't remember. A lot of people said on Police Academy, they couldn't remember at all making a Police Academy free. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Virtually everyone we spoke to couldn't remember even making it. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, you get that, but you go in it rose-tinted thinking everyone's going to go, yeah, it was amazing. Oh, on day 22, we did this, and day 26, we did this, and so and so. Mm. People just don't remember. I mean, like, do you remember what happened in your job? three weeks ago on Wednesday. And of course, it's a different experience. Of course it is. But you'll find that a grip or a producer's assistant will remember every single detail because for them, it's massive. Yeah. And also, if it's their first film as well, 
if you're the production coordinator on your first movie and it's Robocop, you remember every single bit of that film because yeah. for you, it's massive. If you're the, an actor who's done 50 films before, you're very limited to what you remember because yeah. it's the job. Hey, you mentioned there, Gary, um, Rob Boutine. Now, um, one of our followers on Facebook is, is you know, I've, I promised I'll ask this question, which he's put forward. Um, it's in relation to Rob Boutine. He says that he knows that you couldn't get Rob Boutine involved, but he'd like to know how important it was to you that he has a big presence in the documentary. And isn't it right that there was some sort of correspondence, like sort of secondhand, his, him giving his reasons as to why he, he couldn't appear? Yeah. So having Rob, Rob is a big part of his documentary for obvious reasons. Rob, you know, created that Robocop suit. He, it was his effects team. So he does play a big part in the dark. People do refer to him in, you know, in high esteem, really. Now, Rob left the business a few years ago, uh, completely went to real estate and kind of not come a recluse as such, but does not, he's not involved in the business. Now, we've heard stories that he was interviewed on a, another documentary where he said a few things and after the documentary he did say to the, the director and the producers and whatnot you know i may have said something i shouldn't have said can you please cut it out i don't want to come across as obviously negative yeah no problem we'll do that and when the documentary came out it was all there and then he wasn't happy about that and he kind of had a little bit of distrust in the whole process really so what happened then obviously is that we tried to get hold of him he's not on social media in any way he, you know, people go, oh, he was involved in Game of Thrones. He's on internet every day. No, he wasn't. He gave, he gave a design. He helped somebody out for, you know, with some prosthetics, you know, he, and sent it to him, sent it to Ireland where it was. He wasn't on set. He wasn't involved heavily. So we obviously then started speaking to Ed Newmeyer about him. Ed Newmeyer, he's still best friends with him. Wow. Sees him quite regularly. And Ed went and spoke to him and then came back and he said, you know, really don't want to do it. Nothing against the documentary. I just don't want to be in, in front of a camera. I don't want to do it. You know, be in the business in any way, nothing will get me out of it. And one day, something might, one day you might change your mind, do a project, but obviously on this one, we've missed the boat. And then Ed was quite funny. Ed went, oh, yeah, I've got a photograph of, <laughs> of, um, of Rob, you know, he's, you know, to show you. And it was a guy wearing a balaclava <laughs> and glasses. He might as well be the face jacker. And, but he goes, that's all you're going to get of Rob Boutine. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what he's like, apparently. So it was kind of, it was upsetting. But we also, we knew we knew from day one we're never going to get Rob. He's not done the thing documentary. He's not done any of our projects. Uh, he's not going to be on it. But we tried. And, you know, and you, you've got to try. And it is frustrating. Again, I know that question is nice. That, you know, that person understood we, didn't, we, we couldn't get him. But you will get questions going, your documentary is crap. How come you haven't got this person? You didn't try hard enough. Yeah. You think we didn't try, you know, we tried every angle we possibly could to get people. And obviously that'll bring us to Weller. We tried every single angle to get that person. You know, I'm not saying this now to sort of like put you at ease with regards to the fact that Peter Weller is not going to be in the documentary, but the majority of interview footage I've seen from Robocop is stuff surround you know directly involving peter weller uh things where like you know the initial uh, documentaries were made at the time the film was made yeah and then the one that was later put together by sony mgm and then also i think on the 2014 blu-ray there's like a 45 minute q a um I, I, or, yeah, or, or maybe yeah. i've seen it on youtube but you know I, i've heard all the anecdotes from peter weller the fact it was such a difficult production for him the issues with the suit how much weight he lost uh you know the the mime artist moni akeem who sort of well, who we've got yeah oh fantastic <laughs> yeah. so you're yeah. gonna you're gonna get everything to do with what peter waller went through and his approach to you know the film from the other people that worked with him so from yeah. that point of view 
I, I was more concerned with you getting people like Kurtwood Smith, which obviously you have, yeah. and you know, obviously the big one being Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, and, you know the fact that they're on board. Then you know, again. Yeah, I mean, for us, it's face value having Peter involved. You know, we, and you know, we're big fans, and Chris is a massive fan. Having him would have been would have been amazing. Now, the story of Weller is we try from day one, as you can imagine. He's the first person you're going to try and get hold of. And at one stage, we we had feedback that he was interested. Now, how true or false that is, we do not know. But there was interest, and it's when we started the project, we always thought that by the time Kickstarter was finished, we'd have Weller on board. And then obviously that never came to fruition. When we got to the states, we still were trying. We spoke to his management team. We started getting that's when we started getting answers. No, then, and it wasn't no because of any other reason other than he did not want to talk about Robocop anymore because he'd done his time talking about Robocop. We then obviously have the likes of Randy Moore, who's friends with Weller and Nancy Allen and Paul Verhoeven, all reached out to him for us, and the answer came back saying no, not interested. Now, that obviously is disheartening for us as well. But obviously, you start to understand, you know, at the end of the day, he doesn't want to do it. He said he's, he's done with Robocop. He's obviously a doc, he's professor now, and he's got a doctorate in fine Renaissance art. He doesn't want to be associated with it. When you then get home and you start seeing that he's suddenly appearing at conventions, new conventions, with Q&As, you start getting a bit peed off. So you start reaching out again and again. And in the end... Um, I had his direct email for a long time, and I, you know, I don't go. If someone says no to us, I won't then start badgering him. I thought, you know what? He's going to be in Germany soon. I'm just going to message. This was last year. I'm just going to message him directly. Yeah, and I, and I did, you know, and that was probably the end of last year, maybe. And I had an email back instantly, you know, from directly from him. Wow. It was a real nice email, you know. It says, you know, I, I'll be following the documentary. All power to you. You're doing a great job. I just don't want to talk about it anymore on camera there's enough archive interviews of me out there use them you have my blessing to use those and the um i'm looking forward to watching it so that for us kind of ended it really you know that what more could we get other than that and you know even recently when rubber cup 2 was announced i know when not uh, when uh, he was in london uh, when we were in the states and and chris chris came over to the states later on this time from police academy he was, he was actually in the uk same time that Weller was in the UK, and I messaged Weller again. I thought, you know, I'll try me look. I know you're in the, in the UK. There's a rumor, obviously, Robocop 2 coming out. This new Robocop, a new sequel, sorry, which you may be in. Uh, question mark. Would you, you know, have you changed your mind? Would you just give us half an hour? And he was responding back to Haven't changed your mind, but good luck still, you know, and looking forward to seeing it. So he's been very nice to us, obviously. He did, didn't have to respond. He could have responded to us, goes, you know, go F ourselves and stop bothering him. He hasn't done that. And he gets a bad rep, well, it does, you know. And he, when he came to London, he had a bad rep of people complaining and whatnot about he, the way he was. People got to remember he's in his 70s. He's obviously there for a reason because he's getting a big uh, guarantee to be there. He's, you know, not, it's not pennies he's getting paid. He's getting paid quite a lot of money to be at those shows, which we can't afford. And I know he did a Q&A last year where... Robodoc trailer was shown in front of him and when one of the members of the audience questioned him and said why aren't you involved in Robodoc everybody else is and he said if they offer me a six figure sum I'd do it now I'm sure he would for six figures yeah. uh, we haven't got six pence like, I've got six Robocop action figures he could have but I haven't got a six figure sum so you know that's where we are with, with Weller but I think you're right you know that we've got enough archives to film it's said, said enough in the past but for face value, having his face fresh on there would have been nice, I think. But, you know, that's one of those things. No no one can say from what you've just said that you haven't tried. You've, you've done your best. and Somebody if it did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Robocop. Who is he? What is he? Where did he come from? We wanted to grab people by the throat. We were so on target. The movie is so precise. What really made it a masterpiece, I think, is Paul Verhoeven. The Verhoeven mantra was blood, I want more fucking blood. You know, shoot them up and blow it up, bloody it up. They were putting more squibs on my body than anyone in film history. I always saw the gang as guys that were having fun. Can you fly, Bobby? I said, this guy's a real sadistic bastard. <laughs> But he enjoys it. Being part of a gang and being a badass. How many kids want to play that? Your move, creep. All I remember is a wall of flame coming straight at me. We were all like, ah! We just did some stuff that you wouldn't do as a professional actor. I like it! Peter Weller was very serious. Better alive, you're coming with me. He's one of the most disciplined people I've ever met in my life. Murphy, it's you. One of the greatest challenges I ever had in my entire life to make that work. Definitely the best robot suit ever. The chest will be the first thing to react, and then the neck, and then the head. Almost every sound in Robocop was created and recorded originally for the picture. Stop motion adds to the effect of robots. You can infuse it with a certain mechanical look. I'm now authorized to use deadly force. Drop it! Right, so as I said, one of the most exciting things for me being you know, a lifelong fan of the film, it's my favourite film, you know, I've, I've never made any sort of secret of that, it's just the prospect of learning new things about the film, but during the, the sort of collecting the interviews and, and, and you know, actually making the you know, sort of meat of the documentary, what sort of new insights into you know, the Robocop franchise as a whole have you uncovered from, from the interviews and which ones have been sort of the most surprising to you? I, mean, I don't want to give spoilers out, but I mean, there's, there's, there's so many new stories that we've got, to be honest. There's so many new kind of, not, not so much so sometimes new stories, stories you've heard before, which are rubbish. And then someone's made upon an internet movie database, and we've kind of verified stories which will surprise people in regards to Weller on set. You know, we know obviously it was difficult, but some funny kind of stories about Weller, the reasons why certain people weren't involved in, this, in the third film and the second film. The issues on the set of the second film, particularly with Irvin Kirshner and Nancy Allen, the kind of more detail on what could have been regards to uh, Nancy Allen's character of Lois in number three being a robot, as in Robocop. She was always in the impression at the end of Robocop she was going to be a robot after because obviously he says to her, we, they, they can fix you, they fix me. Obviously, in number two, she's not a robo, uh, robo uh, robot, but obviously the rumor was in number three she was going to be one. But for me, you know, I said to you earlier on, but the biggest thing for me is the third one, but people do really bash that third one. But when you watch the doc, you'll see really what it's like to make a film with pressure, not only pressure having a franchise as big as Robocop, pressure of your budgets being cut, and pressure of, of, uh, of the studios wanting a PG movie because of the cartoon series. And those people were battered on that set. So you, you, we've got some great stuff on that, number one and two. I don't want to give anything away, obviously, because Chris will kill me. But I think with regards to three, I think we, you people were very pleasantly surprised about, actually, you know, I think people enjoyed the third doc. I think people really will. But also the TV series as well, you know, that, that gets battered. But a lot of people remember the TV series more because, obviously, it was more accessible for them as a kid. The TV series was in the films. But again, people like Richard Eden, it's just an amazing guy, a really, really 
put his heart and soul into part of Robocop. He really did, you know. He really looked at the psychological element of Robocop more so than you think he would have for a TV series. And he does come across as really articulate and gives a lot of information about what he thinks Robocop is. And obviously, the other spin we're having about it, obviously, is this is a film franchise which was aimed, which is an R-rated film, which children watched, and how that evolved really as well. How did an R-rated film become a kid's film? So so speaking of kids and Robocop and R-rated films, how did you first come to, to see the original 1987 film? I watched it, God, I can't remember. I've, it's always been there for me, that film. I remember going to my friend's house, Ben, years and years and years ago, and we had sherbet dip, you know, ones with, li- yeah. you know, with licorice ones with licorice stick in it, yeah. and we we laid it on the fl- on the table and we're snorting it, <laughs> copying um, Bob Morton. Yeah, and we didn't know what we're doing. I remember snorting sherbet dip, not even realizing <laughs> that it was drugs and what drugs were because of that film. If that's the influence it had on me. I probably got high on that. But yeah, I just always watched Rubber Carpet. It was always on. You know, we were. I was allowed to watch adult, you know, adult films, not dirty films, uh, R-rated films and kind of horror films, and I was always allowed to watch those kind of films. So. I had the action figures when it came out. I had, you know, the action figures that came out for the TV series as well. And, you know, I used to watch TV series quite a lot. I love, I, you know, I, I've got, again, nostalgia for the second film because there was a kid in it and I was a kid, you know, who who didn't want to be Hob, you know, and he was a little knob, but who didn't want to be Hob? It's always been in Robocop for me. I can't pinpoint the day, uh, the day I watch it. I know when I watched Return of the Living Dead, which is my favourite film. Yeah. I distinctly remember watching that the first time. But yeah, it seems to always been there, Robocop does, for some reason. And that kind of TV version of it, where, you know, they're in the lift and, or whatever, and the swearing is taken out and it's been changed or something like that. You know, it's kind of, I remember all that happening when I was a kid watching it on ITV with the the, the real crappy dubbing on swear words. Yeah, you'd, you'd go into school the next day and, you know, you'd, you'd all be quoting things like, you know, why, yeah, yeah. why me, why me instead of fuck me, fuck me. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. you're going to be a, a, a bad. Oh, what did Bob Morton bad say? Not bad mother frigate, bad mother. I'm not said now. Yeah, it was just something completely ludicrous. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it was the same with when um, I think ITV first got Die Hard, and and you know there was the TV version of that, and it, you know Yippee Kaye Kimasabi. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it it was stuff from our childhood that you know I I I can actually remember the first time I saw Robocop. It was you know the the VHS version, and it it was just sort of left for me one day when I was left in the house without my parents. My dad had left it with a, a copy of Predator. So it was oh, yeah. just day one, I saw Robocop, then Predator, and it was that was it. My eyes were sort of open then to, you know, to, to R-rated films. And, and at the time, I think they, they were definitely the sort of hardest, you know, most violent films I'd seen at that point and just left a, you know, a, an impression on me that has just lasted to this day. Amazing. Yeah, and these films you know, were never designed for us yet. We fell in love with these films, you know, you know, and it's become that kind of thing where you carry these horror films and these kind of horrific films. And I always say Rubber Cop's a horror film. People argue with me. What happens to Alex Murphy is horrific. It is. You know, it's because, it's because people don't walk around with a, with a Freddy Krueger, you know, glove on and yeah. slash people. This is real horror, what happens to somebody, you know, and, and we remember these as kids, you know, and we kind of, we, we, these, these characters become heroes, really, and iconic to us, you know, and that's what I love about these projects, that you can go back a little bit and relive that, that these are iconic characters. These are, you know, Kurt Smith as Clarence Bodicat is iconic, you know. It, it would be it would be so easy now, Gary, for you and I to just go off and, and you know, yeah. I've, <laughs> I, back in, back last July for the, the 30th anniversary, I did an episode of Wrong Real with James Hancock, who 
is just as big a Robocop fan as I am. It's one of his favourite films. His knowledge of the, of the film is just through the roof. And we just talked solid for, I think in the initial I did two and a half hours about Robocop. There's just so much, just even yeah. on the, on that first film. We did cover um, Robocops 2 and 3 as well. But what is it that you think about the, you know, the original 1987 film that has sort of stopped it from getting lost amongst the sea of like the, you know, the, the, the glut of similar action sci-fi films from the 80s. Why is that film in particular endured? I think, one, the fact that it was Paul Verhoeven style straight away, and yeah. that's, you know, completely different to what you expect. This is a film set in the future, but the future isn't flying saucers and, you know, flying cars, which he wanted originally in the script. But it's 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 a real industrial future. That could be real. And, you know, Robocop could be real that you know there's nothing in that film which couldn't technically happen there's no reason you know where you look at stuff now on youtube where you see people with robotic arms which have been made for them which are obviously linked to their kind of sense sensory glands and whatnot and their nerve endings where their brain can operate a robotic arm so how far are we away from making that kind of thing happen really even back then it, it what didn't seem too far away in regards to it happening and someone like Robocop, where it is that, you know, and he describes it as a Messiah, kind of his American Jesus, Paul Verhoeven does that. It's a very simple story of, you know, a man who is killed, who does, he's resurrected, and who does have to change. And I like the fact that Robocop as well, it doesn't dwell on the kids and the wife. It doesn't dwell at all, which is, which remake did, which we won't talk about that. But again, it, it shows that somebody has sacrificed themselves to be something better. And, and I think that's why it, it kind of lasts. And also, it hasn't dated. The effects haven't dated. The look of it hasn't dated. And the reason why the new film looks crap is because it's this futuristic, shiny black suit, which looks like a cross between Batman and something else, I don't know, a, a racer. But the reason why Robocop looks, still looks amazing today is because it's industrial, it's raw, and it looks like it could be made. A Jaguar plant could make it, you know, or Land Rover could make it, you know. It doesn't need to be billions of pounds to make a suit like that. So it, it, that's, that's, that's my reason. I've gone on too much probably about it, but that's really for me. I, I fully agree with you. It's, it's the realism. It's the sort of... Um, it's that thing that Verhoeven's carried with with him through so many of his films, probably as a result of his childhood growing up, seeing the Nazi yeah, occupation yeah. of Holland. He's, he yeah. would have seen some horrific things. He oh, would yeah, have yeah. seen beatings, executions, uh, you know, outright murders, just, you know, the the, the, the brutalisation of his own people. And he was a young boy. And, and I think this is why there's so much, you know, graphic violence in his film. On occasion, you, know, you could argue that he does glorify it, but I certainly don't think in Robocop, it's ever glorified. It's done for a purpose. And, you know, you see, you meet this character of Alex Murphy. You don't spend any time with him, really, to get to know him. So how no. are you then going to get the audience on board to really feel for this character? Well, you give him an extremely brutal death. And I think at that point, even though you don't know this guy, you feel for him. You feel for every, you know, gunshot. And, you know, you, you, you feel for him and you hate the guys that are doing it for no reason other than, you know, a sick, malicious sort of... Yeah, joy that they're getting from torturing this guy. It's their own gratification we're doing it for, not it for us. It's from that point of view where Verhoeven's use of this extreme violence, I think, is fully justified. And yeah, then, yeah. you know, it's in, in the boardroom with Kinney getting shot by Ed 209. It's done for you know, more of a comic effect. But at the same time, when I was watching that 12 years old, I was just stunned. And, you know, yeah. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, it stands out today. I mean, you know, you talk about the Kinney scene, it's ridiculous in its execution regards to having bullets go through that man yeah. but it's still horrific in the same way you're not laughing after it 
it's it's you know you look at it and go that guy's been ripped to pieces with those bullets but and then you know and they're trying to turn off your head to an iron and whatnot but it's horrific completely and even like when you know uh, murphy's been taunted on the floor you know and he's like beep 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 beep, beep. It, 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 they're laughing but you're yeah. not laughing really you might have a little bit of a smile on your face but when you first watch that you're going that guy's gonna die any second yeah. and this is you've only caught a glimpse of him as well as you said you've got a little glimpse he's got a wife a little bit glimpse he's got a kid you've still kind of you know this guy's a good guy you know he is yeah and you know there's shit going on in, in obviously in detroit where people cops are dying you've already seen that with a locker yeah. where the locker's obviously replaced the name is so watch what happens to him that stays with you and i think uh, and not yeah. a lot can do that to you really no and you know robocop is from a certain point of view if you take out key scenes in that film it's a very cold brutal callous film but then when you put in the scenes of Murphy going back to his family home, him then having obviously the recollections of his family life. And then my favorite scene in the film is at the end or, or just before the showdown at the end where Murphy removes his helmet and he's talking to Lewis about the fact that he can feel his family, but he can't remember yeah. them. And yeah. that, that scene, it, it, it lasts barely a minute, but it's a combination of the incredible location it, that the, the steel mill uh, in Pennsylvania, yeah. where they shot that is still my all time favorite film location. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know if you guys cover in the doc, but I'm just fascinated about yeah. about that sort of old, sort of mid 60s, 70s sort of industrial architecture that sort of fell yeah. to the wayside when that's amazing. You know, yeah. yeah, when the steel industry collapsed, and I've always, you know, I've driven past steelworks and, and places like that, and I always instantly think back to Robocop. Robocop, yeah, yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Yeah, and it's that scene that is again, it, it shows that this film that could have been seen as just brutal, you know, sadistic violence. The film's got a heart, and I think that is why the film has, yeah. is so good. It doesn't just throw violence and action on screen for the sake of it. And even though it's you know it's 103 minutes, it's I, I, I will still argue that it is one of the best edited films I've ever seen. If you t if you remove any scene from Robocop, it's not going to play the same. Even like scenes which you could argue that age it, like the, the nightclub scene when he goes to arrest Leon. You could argue that you know the the, the fashions there and the music does yeah. age of the film. You take that scene out and it's going to miss a beat. Yeah, it does miss a beat. It does. Yeah, uh, the Frank uh, surname Urosti, I think it is. Yeah, Frank J. Urosti. Yeah, he he was amazing to get hold of as well, obviously, regards to interviewing him. And you know, this is this is an expert in his field. And you know, you watch Robocop and he's like a comic book. It's it's literally bang 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 bang. And you've got to be a film like that. You've got to have that pace to it. If you don't have it, you're screwed in a film like that completely. And you said, you know, even the bits where you talked about obviously the Murphy stuff, but look at the stuff with the adverts popping up and the yeah. news stuff and the news flashes and whatnot. They're ridiculous, but actually, they really, really fit in that kind of world, really, to show that the world has gone to pot and and it's be and we we are being taken over by a, a corporations which are destroying us. Now you go back to eighty-eight. That was on the that was kind of you know on the minds of people. It's happened now. Yeah. I mean, Walt Disney are taking over the world. Walt Disney are literally you know the old man and Ronnie Cox uh, and, and Dick Jones. Sorry, it, you know it, one organization is taking over regards to Hollywood. Every single film franchise. What's going to be next? You know, when you start getting these corporations take over, you start getting limited then to what you can get. And also, you start getting obviously these sublime messages coming through, which which happens in Robocop. The media is controlled by by certain people, and, and the police are controlled as well by you know the same people who are, are the villains. You, you say though, there's loads of social commentary throughout Robocop, yeah, yeah. and I think one of the unique things is the fact that you've got 
this Dutch guy who comes to America to start his American movie making career and he is sort of looking from an outsider's point of view at sort of 80s corporate-driven yeah. Reagan-era America. And he yeah. is, is, is giving the Americans his sort of outsider's view of the society at the time. And, you know, I think a lot of the best films reflect the, the, you know, the culture, the politics of the time. And as much as you could argue that they age Robocop, I, I don't think the film has aged badly at all. And if anything, that. it's more relevant than ever. I think it's relevant more so today. I think, you know, than ever, as you said, it just, just is. And and I think having another director other than Paul doing that film, it would have been completely different in its tone. It would have been, the script was very much about the sci-fi, flying cars and whatnot the script was. How it would have been a different film company. I mean, look at Total Recall quickly, you know. That again, it's, it's grounded in a really weird way. Even though they're going to Mars, it's all this kind of stuff. It still has that industrial feel and realism to it, regards to the characters, regards to you know the machinery that takes you to the other world and whatnot, regards to you know the kind of you know uh, recall and whatnot. That's all Paul. Yeah. You look at Starship Troopers as well. These giant bugs and whatnot. It's still Paul. It's still it's a it's a war movie with bugs. Yeah. But it becomes like a real war movie, as you would do if you're watching kind of like, you know, something set in Iraq or set in the 1940s. And that's Paul, his genius reach, make things grounded and realistic when, when they shouldn't be. If you would have had Tom Holland was originally going to direct, um, was asked to direct Robocop, yeah. you, we, what would it have been if Tom would have done it? Would it be more comedy? Would it have been more sci-fi? Would it have been, you know, you don't know, do you, on these things? So... You know, serendipity, you never know. But actually, the success of Robocop is all down to Paul. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think well, one of the questions I, I did have for you would have been, why Why do you think that following the original film, the franchise sort of failed to recapture the magic of the original? But I think you just answered it there. The fact yeah. that that key missing ingredient was Paul Verhoeven. And, you know, I think, was it in uh, 88, around about the time of the writer's strike, when the, Ryan were desperate to, to cash in on the success yeah, of the original? Uh, yeah, Verhoeven was approached, but he refused because he, there just wasn't the right script available. No. He wanted to do, obviously, Corporate Wars, you know, that's yeah. the room. And obviously, they didn't want to do that, or Ryan didn't. So, obviously, you know, he, he set aside then. I think, as well, with the reason why the franchise suffered, because you could, you could replicate to a degree, once you've got a foundation like Robocop, you can replicate it to a degree regards to, because you've got it there, you've got the canvas, is already there, yeah. with a bit of paint on it. Why it suffered was a studio, like most franchises back in the 80s, each film came out, and the money reduced, didn't it increase, it reduced on each film, and they wanted these films quickly, and obviously two of the needs, obviously, as we know, for a, uh, a financial situation, so, but so was the third, but then the third was the issue with the kids, they decided, even though they knew the kids were going to watch it, even though it was an, if it was an 18, they couldn't see past that and wanted it to be a PG. Yeah, I think they, you know, they, yeah. want, they wanted ticket revenue from cinema ticket sales as opposed yeah. to, you know, the fact that these kids would eventually watch it on VHS. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that, wasn't that film shelved for about a year or two and it later... I yeah, think it was, it was about, eight, about a year, 18 months. Yeah. Came out, yeah. And that, you know, that film alone, Robocop 3, is just a perfect example of a studio that's on its knees that's desperate for a quick hit of cash and yeah, you know, yeah. the fact that they're willing to sacrifice the sort of creative you know Wait, you destroyed, of, yeah, yeah, they did and you know I as, as much as I sympathize for the likes of, of Robert Burke who were sort of caught in the crossfire and yeah. you know would have received you know 
some of the criticism for the film. It's not it's not down to people like that. It's it's a studio decision to cut corners and to put too much emphasis on aiming an adult film to a, ch- a children's market. It it didn't work. And no. you know, I think a lot of people argue that the second film by having uh, the character of Hob that they're going to appeal to children, but being such a nasty R-rated yeah, film yeah, as the second film is, I think it automatic, automatically you're going to alienate children from that as much as, you know, I was desperate in 1990 to see that film. But unfortunately, in the UK, you had to be 18 to go and see a film, whether you were with an adult or not. I think, yeah. unfortunately, at the time, I was 13, maybe, and just wasn't old enough to go. I, you know, I did try, and I was turned away, uh, much to my... Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then later, when the film eventually came out on VHS, I watched it, and I tried my damnedest to love the film. But I, you know, I've got a bit of a strange relationship with Robocop 2. It's the film that I've been most excited about, more than probably any other film, and it was a massive disappointment for me. But I've sort of come to terms with that now. I understand that it was just... You know, a lot of things coming together at the wrong time. It was the wrong time to make a sequel to Robocop. They should have waited a few more years, maybe until Verhoeven was in a position he was willing to go back to it. But exactly. you know, it's just one of those things. And if, if if he had made Robocop at the time, then we wouldn't have got Total Recall. No, exactly, yeah, we wouldn't have. Unfortunately, the old saying, things happen for a reason. But, you know, it happened. And as you said, you know, Robocop 2 is a message to some degree. But again, it's kind of, it's not as, it's not that bad it's got its good points, it's got its bad points. In tone, to a degree, it, it looks the same in regards to, you know, the kind of aesthetics of it. But you're right, I mean, what would it have been if, if, if Paul got his hands on it? Yeah. What would Corporate Wars have been? Would Corporate Wars have been too much for 1988, 87, wherever it was, 88? Would it have been too much for a film like that to happen? If it's, Corporate Wars is set years after it's supposed to be. Yeah. I, I just so, think it's, it's like lightning in a bottle. There's some films yeah, yeah, that yeah. You, you, in an ideal world, they should have just left them as one film, unless someone could have, you know, th- th- there've been sequels which I thought, that's not going to work. You know, after the you know the perfect full stop that was put on things with Toy Story two in ninety nine, when they announced in two thousand and ten that Toy Story three was coming, I thought, how are they possibly gonna you know sort of make another film that's going to be worthy of that trilogy? From that point of view, I think they did. I think it's a it's a great trilogy, um, but at the time I thought it it won't work. But I was proven wrong. But then there's so many sequels where they've just they failed to capture the magic of the original. Unfortunately, the Robocop franchise is as good as example of any of them. You've got. The original film is on, on, on such a, a, a pinnacle of quality and just nothing else in the franchise has ever come close to it. Certainly the 2014 remake was completely the wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, the, what It was such a vanilla film. You know, I think yeah. like, you know, I say Robocop was the first film I ever wrote about um, to any extent. Uh, this was back in 2014. I think the second or third film I wrote about was the Robocop remake because I wanted to pick a film that I both loved and then pick another film that I had <laughs> massive issues with and just see... It was just a test my own writing style. And I've gone back and read it and I wouldn't change a word of it. I think every bit of criticism <laughs> is justified. It was just a vanilla film. And you know, I do feel sorry for, for um, Jose Bedelia, the director of that film, because as much as I think it was played down, I do think that Sony put too much pressure on to go for that PG-13 rating. I don't I think, think that was anything he would have ever wanted to do himself. I, you'd hope not. I'm not being a fan of the film as allegedly he was. You wouldn't have thought he would do that. Yeah. Then, then it was miscast as well completely and that, that actor's a good actor you know and you watch him in things like House of Cards and whatnot he's very good yeah but, Joel, Joel Kinnaman he's, yeah yeah, yeah but he's, he's, he is just, it was just he was just miscast in that completely yeah. and then also as I said you know Mark Keaton's an amazing actor miscast oh absolutely what, what was he even a villain you know but suddenly the, yeah, yeah. He, he was a good answer what, what, no justification for that whatsoever he just, all he's a bit of a knob 
He ain't like yeah. he isn't like the uh, Dick Jones who's involved no. in the drug trade and whatnot, and who's actually funding Clarence Bodica. The guy just a knob. That's all he is. There's so much in the film that's unclear. Who's yeah. the main villain? Uh, I think by yeah. the end, they, I don't even think they were sure they wanted Michael Keaton to be an outright villain. Uh, you know the the other Clarence Bodica sort of character, yeah. and I, again, you not to make any comparison, they are polar opposites. You've got Clarence Bodica, yeah. who is one of the most sickest, twisted villains I've ever seen in a film. Then you've got the character of Antoine Vallon. I can't even remember the guy who played him. He's the most forgettable villain I've ever seen in a film. There's just nothing about that film that stands out, and. The way it finishes with Samuel L. Jackson having his sort of rant about yeah uh, into, into the screen, it's like, is that your idea of social satire? I, I oh, there's just so much wrong with it. it. I think that film's biggest flaw is its mediocrity. It, it's yeah. not, it's it's not so bad. It's good, bad. It's just so run of the mill that it doesn't deserve to carry the you know the the label of Robocop. Yeah. It's just not. It's not a yeah. Robocop film. It's just that's a problem. It's just yeah. It just it tries to be some. It tries to put a spin on this kind of modernization of it it didn't need it at all i mean robot didn't need a remake really full stop it needed a sequel if anything uh, and obviously which now it's getting if, if that does happen we've heard also from you know, alien 5 was happening for how long it never happened i just think it was just it, it was just as you said it executed poorly it didn't service the fans and it alienated actually the fans massively massively alienated the fans like I say, I, I'm not going to go over you know old ground, but it, it's just a it's a pointless film, and you know yeah. I, I really wish they hadn't bothered. So mo- moving on from from that, <laughs> is is it right that uh, you guys uh, recorded audio commentaries for Scream Factory's Robocop two and three yeah, Blu-rays? Yeah. yeah, we were asked by them to do. Uh, we've actually done a few from there. We did Return of the Dead. We just done Return of the Part two, and we did uh, Robocop two and three for them as well. Yeah. So yeah, and, and unfortunately, you know, I was hoping they would get UK releases. You know, I haven't got a, a multi-region Blu-ray player, but just, just you know, we we recorded a, I think two audio commentaries so far for the podcast. We did Casablanca, which um, you know, it, it's not the longest film. It's like it's an hour and forty-two minutes, and we did that all in one go. And then we did The Dark Knight, which was a two and a half hour film, and. When we record, we just record from start to finish, and then from the point that as soon as you hit record and the film is playing, just to allow people to sync the film up, we have to talk continuously, and we're not, you know, we can't edit ourselves. I would imagine, like you know, recording a commentary for a studio like that is is different. No, exactly the same. It's exactly the same, is it? <laughs> yeah, ah, yeah, yeah. Well, we just did it. In, we did it in Chris's living room, watching the film, and just wow. Had- yeah, I mean, like, they get the obviously the MP4 or whatever Chris Bumay does it in, and it matches the film perfectly. So yeah, for them, and obviously it's kind of high resolution, high high quality. Exactly the same. We sat and watched the film together in in uh, real time. Uh, the interesting thing about Robocop two and three was we were told, you know, that we could not MGM would not allow us to be negative about Robocop three. Wow, <laughs> uh, and we had to really really be nice about it so when you listen to it but someone someone did a review and they said it was a great commentary but they were like being a bit too nice about this third film because we told we had to be and you don't want to when you do a commentary you know you don't want to just sit there in silence so you've always got to talk you've always yeah. got to talk about something so it was kind of like oh this is great you know nostalgia when i was a kid you know this was great for me being a kid watching this film and we said it about 90 times yeah. during, well if we've you know with our followers, we we we've I, I put out a tweet before when just after we did Casablanca, and, and I asked for a bit of you know sort of input as to what our most requested commentaries would be. And some of the films that that came up, 
there's just no way we could sit down and talk about those films yeah. for two hours with a film playing without being critical. We, we did it. We did it. Yeah, we did it. Race and Return did part two. I used to love that film as a kid, and then we got into an hour into it. Me and Chris and was like, "What? What? What do we say now?" Yeah. We what we, we don't what we don't want to do obviously is give. We want to do it from a fan point of view. Uh, with a little bit of trivia, but because you can get someone else doing like, the trivia bits, really, who've been in the film. We're not in the film. So we try and give it like from a fan's point of view what we've kind of learned from it. You know what we enjoy and whatnot. When you don't, when you kind of, it's kind of hard. You like, you don't want to sound like you're talking crap, and also you don't want to just not talk. You've got to just re. And it, that was a, that was a torturous. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I, I've, I've got to say that I, I don't agree with what MGM have done. And it's, like, if you look back at, um, I think, 20th Century Fox released a, a, a big lavish two disc edition of uh, Cleopatra. Yeah, and that's a film we're going to be covering in depth on on, a, on an upcoming episode, and. You know, they they put together an audio commentary running across the the entire you know four hour eleven minute runtime of the film with various people talking, and you know a two hour making of documentary. And they you know they they don't shy away from the fact that there's there's a lot wrong with the film. You know the the, the, the production history of the film is is more fascinating than the film itself. So I think, you know, you, people are going to buy the Blu-ray based on the film. They're not going to listen to the audio commentary. And think, oh, that this film's a load of crap. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm going to return it. So I I don't see why they've why they've done that, and I think it's a bit of a short-sighted stance to take from from the studio. Yeah, it's interesting, and it was difficult for us. But yeah, it's one of those, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about RoboDoc? I, you know, I could probably talk about uh, it. You know. No, the only thing I'll say about it probably now is obviously, you know, that the delay on it, obviously, is because we've been, we were kind of holding out for well to a degree, you know, and that yeah. did push us back a little bit. And obviously, we did also interview more people than we expected after. And also, what Chris and he's sort of doing, unlike Fright Night and unlike, unlike the other documentaries, where you have kind of this narrative where it's pre-production, writing, casting, director, special effects, music, legacy. What we're doing on this one is that Chris and Issa are doing a scene-by-scene di- dissection on the first film because we've got people from every single scene. So the film will start, obviously, with how the film came about, the writing a bit and then once you get into production you've literally got scene one cast talking about that scene scene two i think critics were saying the other day that murphy's death scene is 20 minutes long so far people just talking about the special effects involved in it and how long is his death scene on, on in the film it's like what two minutes yeah it's yeah, so, thereabouts yeah we found out the only the other, the other week that scott thompson who plays uh, copeland one of the cadets in police academy one three and He's a bloody rapist, which we, we didn't know. I, I, I saw the tweet, yeah. and so, yeah, yeah, unbelievable. So, or was it? Did you put on Facebook? I remember seeing it because you've, yeah, got, a, you've got a screen grab, and then I think someone yeah. tried to question the fact of whether or not it's actually him. He listened to me, and he confirmed it. Yeah. Uh, wow. So we, we're doing some outsourcing uh, for Police Academy in, in October, anyway. Uh, and Scott's going back in to talk, do a quick interview about that one scene, obviously playing the rapist. <laughs> so, so you, effectively, yeah. you, you're doing sort of um, not so much reshoots, but you're doing pickups of, of, of the documentary that you've had in the can for you know X amount yeah, of months. Yeah, 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 wow. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we still got, so we're still working on it because we went today. Yeah. One last question while, while we're talking about the editing process. Obviously, from, from the backer emails that I've been receiving over the course of the last, you know, since since this began. It's, it's apparent that this is a ma- mammoth undertaking. It's gone from like thirty, you know, participants up to like ninety or, or however yeah, many. Yeah. So, so how many people are actually involved in the in the editing process, and and how do you how do you, how do you maintain overall continuity of the edit? Well, uh, Chris does that as yeah. obviously the director. So uh, they 
we've now got, I think, four or five people working on it. So we've got, obviously, Chris and Eastwood are working on Robocop 1, 2, 3, and TV series as kind of projects. And obviously now on Premiere, you can obviously work on the same project remotely in different locations and obviously updates, obviously, when you send your update to each other. So then Chris can keep an eye on what obviously Eastwood's doing. Eastwood can keep an eye on what Chris is doing. We've got somebody else working on the animations, somebody else working on the transitions and the grading, and somebody else working on the uh, some of the image stuff. So we've got, I think, four people working on it. Five. We've got a new person just started who's going to be helping with Robocop 2 frame of TV series with Chris. So it, it, it becomes a mammoth task. I mean, I'm, I'm not involved in anything, thank God, but I've seen the kind of timeline on it, and it's ridiculous. The folders themselves, regards to the project files on this, is literally ridiculous mm. with, with the amount of footage they've got and the amount of images they've got. Paul Salmon, who was the executive from Orion, provide loads of stuff for us regards to Robocop 2, typically, and 3, some on Robocop 1 as well. So that's the process we're in at the moment. So we've got a meeting on October the 1st, I think, or 2nd, uh, here in Birmingham with Eastwood and Chris to go through them to show, well, show me and show each other where they currently are regards to the kind of the, the project, really. And they're taking in sections as well. So Chris is working on because it's a scene by scene di- dissection Chris has taken one group of scenes and he's working on them East was doing another group and East within refines Chris's for him then and vice versa talking anything up to 20 hours a week working on it wow I understand a lot of the backers may be getting impatient but you know the best things come to yeah. those who wait such a you know, yeah. project like this it can't be rushed and I have no doubt that as soon as it's going to happen the thing is you know it's one of the things the annoying thing it's going to happen you know you're going to get it, you know, it might be now, it might be next week, it might be in a year's time, it might be Christmas, you're going to get it, you've seen the footage of it, the, we've got a six minute, whatever, trailer, it's there, people have been interviewed, people are working on it, what we don't hope people think is that Chris and Lisa are just sitting at home watching EastEnders, they're not doing that, they're spending, like I said, up 20 hours a week working on it, as well as having full-time jobs. Well, you know, look, if anything, and Gary, I think it's you know, part of the reason why you know we agreed to do this now before the documentary yeah. comes out because it's it's sort of like a it's like a, a Kickstarter update, but on a yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, in, in the form of an hour and a half, you know, interview. So yeah, hopefully that's going to answer a lot of the. You know, well, hopefully this will, yeah, and we'll, we'll obviously yeah. we'll send the interview obviously when it's when it's published, obviously to you know on, on the Kickstarter page and whatnot. Yeah. Because, you know, it is, you know, me and Chris were going to, will eventually, I'm seeing Chris next weekend because we were, we were doing an interview for a documentary. We were actually being interviewed on the other side of the camera for a change about video nasties. So at the same time, me and Chris might do an update anyway ourselves, obviously where we are and get that published as well. Um, it's it, it just one of things, it's kind of really, it, it really puts down on things really sometimes where you're really so invested. And, uh, we can understand completely people go, you know, we really want to see, you know, when's it going to be happening? But when you get the abuse, and you're mm. thinking, you know what? Without people supporting a project, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. But when, you've only, when you put 25 quid in, don't rip us to pieces and call us all the names and some call us like crooks and whatnot for 25 quid. Mm. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, if you, if you put 10 grand in, fair enough, or a grand, or 500 quid, or 200 quid, but when you put 25 quid, just please be patient because yeah. I've ordered stuff before online like from people like Arrow and waited a year for it and had delays, you know, and others stores I've ordered, ordered from 
it's happening it's being made and it's being made right yeah. we we learned our mistakes on Leviathan by Russian stuff. And, you know, we rushed that. And despite the fact people love it and actually can dissect it in sections, we don't think it's it's a project as superior as it should be. This will be. And the same as, like, Brewster was. Brewster was done properly. Had a slight day, not a massive delay, but was done to the letter as we want it to look at the end. We don't want to do is have to release Robocop again in a year's time. The producer's cut or another version mm-hmm. on another disc. We don't want to do that. We want this to be the definitive version which goes out. Yeah, absolutely. Get it right the first time. Yeah. Uh, so aside from people that were involved in the original productions of the films, have you interviewed anyone else sort of outside of you know those, those films, like sort of a, from like a, a fan's perspective? We, we looked at fan stuff before, and, you know, and again, it's how it fits the narrative, really. I think something we might look at in the future for other projects. The only other person we interviewed, really, from a kind of a, a fan point of view, or kind of expert, kind of aficionado point of view, was Oliver Harper. Yeah. Um, and obviously, this way for obviously Oliver's done his own projects now. Yeah, he's uh, doing um, uh, Lost in, Action Heroes. Yeah, yeah, yeah for obviously um, his, own, his own Kickstarter. He did yeah. very successful, but Oliver's a great guy, and we interviewed him. Uh, just because obviously he'd, he'd done some retrospective stuff on it and obviously he had a bit of a following and whatnot. Gave a nice interview. It'd probably be a bonus feature. Uh, we also did an interview with a guy from MTV uh, who's a big fan of Robocop when he was in the States. That'd be a bonus feature as well. So we are looking at future projects to have kind of more fan involvement a little bit. But again, it's kind of how we fit that into a, quite a big comprehensive documentary and how that fits in the narrative. Sometimes it's out of place sometimes. I've seen some docs where lots of cast and crew involved suddenly a fan turns up in the middle of it and it kind of takes the flow out a little bit sometimes so it's really how you manage that so from that point of view then gary i'm not going to ask you for an estimate as when it's going to be released because i'm like i said i'm (laughs) I'm willing to wait and i know when i've finally got that you know that blu-ray in my hand then it's going to be worth the wait yeah Um, moving on from robodoc and i think that you know the project you're in the middle of shooting at the moment is that right is it what an institution the story of police academy yeah academy yeah tell tell us a little bit about how that because we richie roberts who's part of the film 89 crew he's he's something of a police academy fan and he did want me to ask for you know the lowdown on on the, the police academy doc I'm a huge Police Academy fan. Again, you know, growing up in the 80s, Police Academy is one of the big films for me. Uh, it's completely different to what we've done before. Obviously, with Robocop and Fright Night and things like that, we always knew it was going to be difficult because when you've got a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign for a film like Robocop or Fright Night or Pennywise, you know you're going to have an audience instantly. Horror fans are desperate for documentaries. They'll invest in it. They'll fund in it. Comedy fans, not so much. You know, and something like Police Academy, I I find I found very much talking to the cast and crew of it is a guilty pleasure as well from a lot of people. A lot of people they love Police Academy. They won't go out and say it. They won't go out and do a fan page or talk about it a lot. But they will watch it on a Saturday and remember Police Academy sits on patrol and things like that. But he won't passionately talk about it as he would do for Robocop. So it, we knew it was going to be a difficult project to get off the ground, but thankfully we did get it off the ground. We had a lot of support from Paul Maslansky, who was the producer of all. Police Academy films and the TV series and cartoon series. He's our executive producer as well, so having him on board has really cemented that project to be a kind of an unofficial official project, if you want to. And obviously, then getting the likes of obviously cast and crew, you know, with Bobcat and things like that. And obviously, Steve Gutenberg. Obviously, we we've met Steve, we talked to Steve, and we've got some footage of Steve, and we will be getting more of him soon as well. 
I was asked recently if I was a Police Academy fan, and as much as I couldn't answer it, the next question was, "Well, can you name the films and their subtitles in order?" And I could, yeah. you know, up to yeah, yeah, yeah. up to mission. Is it Mission to Moscow? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh well, yeah, but you know, it, it's one of those things. It's again, it, it, it's a nostalgia it's, thing for me. It's nostalgia. Yeah. They're interesting stories, and we've got yeah. some really gold in it as well. I mean, Stock's going to be Stock's a fun documentary, really. It's just, it's kind of all seven films in one doc. And it's really designed. I mean, we concentrate on the first one, obviously, heavily. And the rest are all clubbed together. And it's just interesting, funny stories. And it's about people like, you know, it's, it's, it's relationship things. It's about people being friends. The legacy of it, the, the kookiness of it, the funniness of it. It's not taking itself too seriously, stock is yeah. Some nice, somber moments in it. You know, I'm, I've been editing the trailer today, actually. I'm doing the trailer edit before, obviously, I was talking to you. So it's kind of, it's a fun little project. Now, it's kind of, it, again, it's a much labour love project for me, this one is. And it's so different to what we've done before. Yeah, yeah it's another one. I, you know, I, I, am, I wasn't a backer of this one, I'm afraid, but I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, Good. it's... Leading on to my last question, what other films would you like to cover in future documentaries? I, we've talked about this recently now. What I would like to obviously do, as I mentioned before, was uh, Mass Universe. I'd like to do yeah. like maybe Teen Wolf, something like that. Our next project, which we are talking about at the moment for next summer, is a little bit different. It's more about a person in the industry and about their legacy. And that person, without going into too much detail, has been in a series of films with a glove. And anyway, and he... I think we really look about how that character has, has kind of become this iconic character and how it's affected actually the actor who played that character as well, right. where the actor has come from a very much a Shakespearean trained background as a, as a proper actor. Yeah. And then being this character who's become iconic and how it has become a kind of that person's life, has it become a burden or is it, is it, is it a blessing really? And what would have happened to that actor if he hadn't done that role? Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of a really in-depth kind of look on that franchise, but not looking at the film for by film, but looking at the impact it's had on that person. So as you, you, you're hinting as to who it is. Yeah, is, yeah, it, yeah. Is, is it someone that has possibly played a famous horror icon? Yeah. And could you say that this is something of a dream project for you? Dream project, yeah. There you go. And I think that yeah. anyone listening to this now that hasn't guessed, well, I'm not going to give yeah, any yeah, more yeah. clues. Yeah, we're not announcing anything yet. But yeah. We haven't obviously dotted the final kind of I's yet and cross the T's, but it's something we, we are actively having conversations about at the moment for next year. Yeah. If not that, we will look at, obviously... Um, Chris wants to do Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, yes. Uh, and Steve Johnson's already agreed to do it. And we already know Robert, Robert, um, Robert, what's the wrong Robert then? <laughs> we already know Richard Edlund. We already know Robert, uh, Richard Edlund. Obviously, he did the special effects on yeah. that as well, uh, and visual effects. And I've already been in touch with James Hong recently about something else. So if we can get, and we, we know somebody who knows Kurt Russell, so it could be that as well next year. We learned this year, obviously we did Police Academy, we also did Night of the Demons at the same time, mm. which is obviously a kooky little horror film from the 80s, uh, which got a massive following, which is an unbelievably big following. So we, we, we know we can do two docs together now in one yeah. studio, so we'll, whatever we do next year, we'll, be, we'll hopefully be two projects at the same time. Well, if you do end up doing Big Trouble, I'm a massive John Carpenter yeah. fan, and you know he is—he's quite active on Twitter. He's—he is, yeah, yeah. I think I yeah. think I'm, I'm meeting Chris said on on Friday after work, and he's staying here Friday night and Saturday. I think we'll have a proper conversation then about the two projects which we're considering doing next year. Yeah, and, and, and you know, he's—I'm sure he'd be on. Well, 
I'm not sure with Dion Paul because obviously he's, you know, he's very much into his music now and has sort of moved away from the film side of things. But he, he's very generous on Twitter. He's retweeted a load of our stuff um, in, in relation to articles that we've written about his films. And you know, he's one of these people that, as much as they're getting on, they, they're so active on social media. Oh, yeah. He, he's yeah. just a great guy. Yeah. I, I mean, that's something I won't do. So, I mean, I always, I always want to do one about Manhunter I did as well mm. once. We did a documentary feature about... Brian Cox, um, a 45 minute feature. We did about him as Lecter. Uh, again, I think it's one of the kind of overlooked films, Manhunter is, yeah. where it's the first time Lecter film. And actually, he's probably the best Lecter, I think, now. Being a big fan of Hopkins for many years, when you're older and you watch Manhunter, you kind of have a different look on Lecter and that. Yeah. But again, it's how much that would sell. And, that, and, you know, there's obviously Demons as well, it was a great kind of Italian film, big following. I just think, yeah, I mean, there's, there's films out there, but the problem you get now is most films start to obviously become harder to get hold of, you know, of cast and crew for various reasons. Mm. And also, obviously, interesting, you know, I would like to do one of Total Recall, Predator, then you, you've got to have Schwarzenegger then, and now, you know, and he's vocal on Twitter, but you try and get hold of him. We tried to do a doc a couple of years ago on Last Action Hero, and we just couldn't get couldn't get him. You can get away with Pete Weller not being in Robocop, but mm. someone like as massive and massive as as Arnie, you haven't got him in a project. It's gonna you're gonna feel it a little bit, I think. Yeah, and but I, I think you know I, I'm a big fan of a lot of these boutique labels like Arrow and Indicator series, especially uh, sorry uh, Powerhouse Indicator, who are you know they're churning out some fantastic Blu-rays with. You know, I find that the majority of the special features aren't actually always people directly involved in the production now they're actually getting people yeah. in to do audio commentaries people like kim newman the um you know the, yeah, the, the yeah. film critic and you know a lot of people who are, i'm actually friendly with on twitter have, have been approached and are taking up the you know the gig to actually record audio commentaries just like you know you guys did with um scream factory in america so i think you know from a certain point of view this is the way forward for a lot of these companies with regards to if the original people are either dead or just not willing to come on board and to yeah. you know, talk about the films, then they'll go for the fans because, you know... It... Oh, yeah, I mean, there's a documentary coming out, just come out now, fan point of view, about Halloween, 40 Years of the Bowman, I think it's called. People, I know people was involved making it. And that's doing really well at festival circuits. And that's like nobody from the cast and crew involved. It's just fans' point of view. And you know, actually, it's doing really well as a doc. Yeah. But it's that way of going moving forward. But I like meeting people who are in the films. So it was good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun part of it. <laughs> Gary, I got to thank you for you know oh, giving me you, you know your, your time on a Saturday night. I'm you know I'm no, no, incredibly fun. grateful. I you know, like I say I'm I'm back in them, but I think 228 of of, of the people who back Robodoc. So oh, I, I'm I've got a vested interest in this from a from a fan point of view. And you know you you guys take as long as you want to. I really appreciate you coming on. Don't, don't tell Chris that because you never get it done. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I appreciate that. And it's nice that people who backed it, and obviously like yourself, who are fans, obviously understand you know, these things are difficult projects. So I do really appreciate that. Well, you know, when, when I put that thing out as, uh, to, for our, our followers to request an audio commentary, Robocop was in the top five. And I thought, oh, well, do you know, I, I've, I've done Robocop. I, I, I did a two-hour episode of Wrong Reel, which is, you know, the, a, a podcast is very close to us. We're, you know, we're part of the Wrong Reel community. We're massive friends with all the people involved in that. And I thought, I'm not going to go over old ground. So what can I do? And then I thought, well, let's, let's contact Dead Mouse Productions. Let's get <laughs> them on. Give them you know, an opportunity to sort of give you know the, the back as an update. Um, you know, even though the, you know we haven't got the finished doc in hand, I, I think it's, it's a far better opportunity for us to talk about it now because it's it, it's that thing of you know I'm salivating just thinking about this having this documentary about my favorite film, and hopefully I'll come away and just learn so much more about it. Yeah, I'm, you definitely will. 
So Gary, where can people um, contact you if they want to chat on social media and, and, and keep up to date? Just uh, search, obviously, Robodark, search Brewster, search on, on Facebook, on Twitter. We've got our own pages. I would suggest if you want to contact us directly, go through the, the website, corpsecreens.co.uk. There's an address on there. Because we run so many pages now on the kind of Facebook with Robocarp and Pennywise and Place Academy, you do sometimes lose track on some of the notifications. It's only really me, Adam, and Chris are managing those. And people then kick off going, I emailed you three weeks ago. We just didn't see it. You know, it's kind of you binging through messages. We always check, obviously, the website email address. So you want to contact us on there, go on there. If you want to keep up updates, just do a search for Robocarp, Robodoc, sorry, do a search for Brewster, do a search for Pennywise or what an institution on Facebook and there's pages that are available there or court screens itself. Brilliant. Fantastic. So everyone, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this episode. Thanks again to Gary for, um, you know, giving us time to just talk about so much that is dear to my heart. I'm sure a, you know, a lot of our followers, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at sky movies, and you can follow us all uh, the film 89 crew on Facebook and Twitter at film 89 UK. And most importantly, Get on the website, film89.co.uk. We're always churning out uh, you know, news articles and feature pieces by a raft of writers, which is growing you know, every month. And as we always say, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly, stay classy.